Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly podcast where we take a closer look at popular songs from the rock and roll era and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call and the queens we use would not excite you. Hey, don't forget to check out the website, howgooditis.com, where you can find some stuff that I found interesting and some other things that don't necessarily fit well into the podcast itself. Also, go follow and like the show's Facebook page, which has some other stuff that'll keep you busy. You can find that over at facebook.com slash out how good it is pod. Hey, in case you haven't noticed, how good it is is still a featured podcast on the Podcast Republic app, and that tickles me to no end. Some people like the way it can skip silences, but I'm fond of its ability to synchronize across playback devices, and according to some internet forums I've seen, that's quite the unique thing. So I can play it on my phone, let's say in the car, and then I get out of the car, and I go into the house, and I can play it again, like pick up exactly where I left off um, on my tablet. Go to my website, howgooditis.com, and click on the button to download that app, or you can get it in the Google Play Store. So Murray Head, much like Ron Dante, is one of those guys uh, who's pretty famous and at the same time kind of anonymous to most fans of pop and rock music. Having said that, I can practically guarantee that you've heard at least one of his two big U.S. hits. And the interesting thing is that these two hits, despite being 15 years apart and very different in style, substance, and content, have something pretty remarkable in common. So Head was born on March 5th, 1946, and his birth name was uh, Murray Seafield St. George Head because he's English, and of course that's his full name. (laughs) His father was one of the founders of uh, Verity Films, which produced documentaries and informational films, and his mother was actress Helen Shingler, who is known for about 10 British films. Murray began writing songs at a young age, and by the middle of the 1960s, he had a recording contract. In 1966, he made his film debut in the movie The Family Way, which was probably uh, Haley Mills' first adult role. Incidentally, if you remember that film, what you may not know is that Paul McCartney wrote the score for that movie, uh, and the music was arranged by Beatles producer George Martin. That's what you're listening to right now in the background. So after working on The Family Way, he concentrated on working in London theater for a few years, where he was cast in a West End production of the show Hair. And it was while he was doing that that he was approached by composer Andrew Lloyd Webber and lyricist Tim Rice to perform on a concept album. Now, concept albums, as a collection of songs with a unifying uh, theme, they'd actually been around since the 1940s, starting probably with this uh, album here, Woody Guthrie's Dust Bowl Ballads. And then moving on into Sinatra's in the wee small hours and then into the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds and uh, the Who's Tommy, which was the first of the rock operas. And while Weber and Rice had in mind, they, they had a rock opera in mind, but it was going to be more than that. What they had in mind was a story based on the Gospels' accounts of the last week of the life of Jesus Christ, starting with his arrival in Jerusalem and then ending with the crucifixion. From there, it moved away from the Bible by dealing with some of the personal and the political struggles that some of the people involved went through. Personally, I've always viewed the story as being sympathetic to Judas Iscariot, who is portrayed as a tragic figure, who's afraid of the direction that the whole movement is taking. But he also finds himself trapped by the inevitability of everything that, according to Jesus, can't be changed. In fact, you could even frame it as the gospel according to Judas. And it was Murray Head that Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice had in mind for the part of Judas. Let's tune in on Judas now. Every time I look at you, I don't understand why you let the things you did get 
concept album for Jesus Christ Superstar also included uh, Ian Gillen from the band Deep Purple as Jesus and Yvonne Elliman as Mary Magdalene. Also appearing on the song Superstar was a female group of six women called the Trinidad Singers. And as far as I can tell, based on my research, this is their one and only recording credit. Superstar was released as a single in late 1969 before the rest of the album was completed. In fact, it was released before the rest of the album was written. Uh, to support the record, MCA Records uh, produced a promotional film of Head and the Trinidad Singers performing inside a church, and it was interspersed with still news photographs and uh, shots of Murray Head climbing around the ruins of a different church. The song hit the Billboard Hot 100 at the end of January 1970, and it peaked at number 74 late in February. Now, almost a year later, however, it re-entered the chart the first week of January of 1971 and eventually climbed to number 60, 6-0, by March. A few weeks later, it dropped off the chart again, and then it re-entered the chart a third time during the week of April 10th. This time, it made it into the top 20, peaking at number 14 at the end of May and remaining there for two weeks. In the UK, it barely cracked the top 50, but in Canada, it did even better than in the US, finishing out at number 6, and that would be its highest position worldwide. But that was good enough for MCA Records. That cleared the way for the album to be finished and ultimately allowed Rice and Weber to put a Broadway show together based on the album. And Murray Head, for some reason, was not cast in the Broadway show. In fact, Murray Head didn't get a lot of attention after Jesus Christ Superstar, despite the fact that he did get a leading role in the film Sunday Bloody Sunday with Peter Finch and Glenda Jackson. And he released this song titled, Say It Ain't So, Joe. Say it ain't so, Joe, please. Say it ain't so. That's not what I want to hear, Joe, and I got a right to know. This song came out in 1975, and I think it got a little bit more attention a couple of years later when uh, Roger Daltrey covered it on his solo album, One of the Boys. Then, in 1984, Tim Rice re-entered the picture, but this time without Andrew Lloyd Webber. Now, during the 1970s, Rice got the idea for creating a musical about the Cold War. He talked with Lloyd Webber about framing a show around the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, but that never went anywhere. Then, Rice hit upon telling a story through the lens of the rivalry that the United States and the Soviet Union had surrounding the game of chess. By the time he came around to this idea, however, Lloyd Webber was pretty deep into putting together a little show of his own called Cats. As a result, someone suggested that Rice work on the show with a pair of musicians from Sweden, Benny Anderson and Bjorn Ulvaeus. And if you think those names sound familiar, well, you'd be right, because Anderson and Ulvaeus are the male half of the pop group ABBA. Now, while ABBA had never formally broken up, by 1982, the handwriting was pretty much on the wall especially with Anderson and Oveas working with Tim Rice on the chess musical. Now, according to Tim Rice, throughout 1982 and 1983, he would describe the mood of a particular song he wanted, and then Anderson and Oveas would write and record some music, and they would send the tapes to Rice, and then Rice would write some lyrics to fit and send those tapes back to Anderson and Oveas, and so on. And just as they did with Jesus Christ Superstar, a decision was made to release a concept album to raise some money before any stage productions were undertaken. And, as with Jesus Christ Superstar, Rice tapped Murray Head to play a part in that concept album. Head got to put on a New York accent and essentially rap the song that became the hit single from that concept album. Bangkok, Oriental City, got the city don't know what the city is getting. The 
creme de la creme of the chess world in a show with everything but Yul Brynner. It's got great reviews, and it's sold enough to put together a concert version in several European locations. And the following year, videos were shot for five different songs, and they were packaged as chess moves. The album was a top 10 hit in the UK and ultimately reached number 47 in the United States. And here's a surprise. It spent seven weeks in the number one slot in Sweden. Now, the song One Night in Bangkok has Murray Head's character, who was originally just called the American, but he gets the name Frederick Trumper in the stage version. He compares the capital of Thailand and its nightlife with a game of chess. He's basically ridiculing the city while the chorus glorifies it. And, oddly enough, uh, the song moves around depending on the production. On the album, it opens up Act 2. In the London production, it's also in Act 2, but the context is different. And in the Broadway show, it's moved to the middle of Act 1. All right, so remember what I told you about Anderson and Olveus writing music and having Tim Rice write the lyrics? Well, Tim Rice has noticed that Olveus would oftentimes provide some scratch lyrics to demonstrate the rhythmic patterns in the music. Now, typically, a scratch lyric sounds like this. the closing theme to the TV show WKRP in Cincinnati. The tune was written and performed by Jim Ellis, who didn't have lyrics yet for the song, so he sent the tape in with the scratch lyrics. Scratch lyrics are nonsense lyrics. There's nothing there. You listen back to that, you'll realize he's not singing anything. The show's producers, though, they thought that was pretty funny, and since that was usually the time when the announcer was talking over the credits anyway, they figured, hey, What's the point of writing real lyrics anyway? So they left it alone. Well, a similar thing happened here, except Olveus wrote some real lyrics to the songs that he and Anderson were sending back. And Rice found a number of individual lines to be what he called embarrassingly good, so he didn't bother changing them. One notable example is the opening of the chorus. One night in Bangkok makes a hard man humble. That was one of Olveus's lines. Now, while the album didn't do especially well in the U.S., the song One Night in Bangkok made it to number three on the Billboard charts and was a top ten hit everywhere in Europe and Australia, with the exception of the U.K., where it peaked at number 12. It was also a number five song on the Billboard Dance and Disco chart for the year 1985. So that means that Murray Head, to my knowledge, is the only person to have his entire catalog of hit singles spring entirely from his participation in concept albums for musicals that eventually became Broadway plays without playing the part on Broadway himself. Head is still active on TV in Britain, and he is still recording, including some albums written and performed entirely in French, believe it or not. And that might explain why his re-recording of Say It Ain't Sojo was a top 20 hit in France back in uh, 2013. To me. 
And that's it for this edition of How Good It Is. Hey, if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow me on Twitter at howgooditispod. You can also check out and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where I throw in a few extra bits for you. Thanks again to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we are going to find out how good it is when you've got the summertime blues. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Yeah.